And I thought, oh, I get it. My job is to be the eyes and hands of Kuan Yin. That's it. That's all I have to do. I mean, the clarity at that moment, that, that that's it, right? And that's the Bodhisattva vow, that's it. But the, the Kuan Yin can't actually do it on her own. Buddha can't do it. Buddha's been dead a long time. And we are the hands and eyes and heart of awakening in the world. Zenshin Florence Kaplow is a Zoto Zen priest and Unitarian Universalist minister. For 25 years, she worked as a conservation biologist specializing in endangered plants in the American West. She is widely published and has edited two books, Wild Branch, an anthology of nature writing, and The Hidden Lamp, a collection of 100 teaching stories by Buddhist women over 25 centuries. Today, she primarily teaches the Dharma in a Buddhist Unitarian Universalist context. You are listening to Sit, Breathe, Bow, a podcast for practitioners. Each week, leading Buddhist teachers share life experiences and insights to help guide your meditation practice, as well as your life off of the cushion. I am your host, Ian White-Marr. This podcast is sponsored by the Providence Zen Center, a residential Buddhist community in Cumberland, Rhode Island. The Providence Zen Center provides opportunities for short and long-term residency and holds retreats from one day to three months. For more information, please visit ProvidenceZen.org. Florence, can you tell us about the moment when you realized that the practice, that the, the discipline of Buddhist meditation was something that you wanted to guide your life? The very first one that was the gateway, I suppose, to my own practice was when I was maybe about 19, 20 years old. And I was going through a difficult breakup, as people sometimes are at that age, and really struggling with grief. And someone had recommended Stephen Levine's book, Who Dies? And I was reading the book, and I came across a story which feels like it has resonated through all the rest of my life, practice life, and life in general, which is the story of Achan Jha and um, the broken glass. And in that story, uh, and this is, I think, it was experienced directly by either maybe Jack Cornfield, Joseph Goldstein in um, uh, Ireland sometime in the late 60s, early 70s. It, there was a student there. Achan Shah was speaking, and he held up a glass of water, beautiful glass, and he said, I can use this glass and I can appreciate it and I can see how the light shines through it 
and how it quenches, how the water inside quenches my thirst, but I understand that the glass is already broken. And that story, which is in many ways a koan, even though it's coming from the Theravadan tradition, uh, just, it was like a gate opening in my mind. And that story and reading that book and thinking about my own relationship to grief and loss and suffering and the big questions of life, which had been haunting me since I was a little girl, led me to begin a sitting practice. Um, and then I think what I would say is over and over since that time, there have been experiences for me that have confirmed that, yes, this practice is infinite, infinitely deep, uh, infinitely transformative. That is a, a great story. And it's funny how the stories appear, I guess, sometimes when, you know, they sort of stand out to us when, when there is brokenness, right? It's like it's already broken. Yeah. Well, and my longtime teacher, uh, Zoketsu Norman Fisher, one of the things he said is, most of the time, what brings people to practice is their suffering. Right. And what to do about it. <laughs> well, it's, it's, or how to be in relationship to it, I think would be more how to be in relationship. Yeah, it's, I mean, practice is hard. <laughs> when I look at people who are practicing, it's like, yes, you've got something to kind of work on. Otherwise, you would, you'd just go to hang out. <laughs> why bother? Why bother? Why, why bother? It's a lot of work. And I think about the teachings of the six realms. And um, so the traditional Buddhist teachings of these six realms of life, um, the God realm, the Titan realm, the, let's see if I can remember them all, the, the human realm, the animal realm, the hungry ghost realm, the hell realm. And sometimes those are treated as somewhat literal and have to do with multiple lifetimes, but of course another way to understand them is that these are realms that we're moving in and out of all the time in our lives, moment to moment. We are being reborn in one of these realms. And again, the traditional teachings with those realms is that the God realm, which is that realm of almost infinitely long life and pleasure and ease, is not a realm where you can practice. Because there's no incentive to practice. And the, the really difficult realms, the hell realms, the hungry ghost realms, even to some degree the animal realms are also very difficult as places to practice because there is so much fear and suffering and desire. But that the human realm, you know, it's kind of like Goldilocks, three bears, the human realm is the one where this mix of suffering and capacity is there. Um, enough suffering so that we are inspired to practice, but enough capacity in the mind and in the body to be able to engage. 
Mm. You made reference of this, um, a question that you had as, as a little girl that had been with you since you were a little girl. And I feel like that's one of the things that sort of drives a lot of people in their practices, you know, what, having a question. And, you know, I suppose for me, I think part of the question is like, what is the, what is this? <laughs> and, you know, and why am I, you know, what is this? In, in other places I've seen, you know, in some of your writing, you've talked about this, a cry for awakening that exists in every human. And I'm wondering if that is part of the question or, or how do you, how do you see the, the question and the, and the cry mm. coming together or. I would say um, that's a great question. And, and I'm feeling like as I try to answer it, that I can, I can feel in myself and remember uh, maybe more like a series of interlocking questions. Hmm. One of them being, why do I feel so separate hmm. from reality? What is this separateness? Which was really painful for me as a child, I think because children also have glimpses of not separate, of union with things. And, and it seems so odd to me, this, this separate self and, and its pervasiveness. And it, it actually brought up sadness for me. I remember looking at a sunset and feeling like like there was a separation between my sense of self and that beauty mm. and wanting somehow to know what that was. So that was one question. The second question was, why is it that people are so awful one another? And to the earth. Mm. And then, and those are both, those are both kind of on the um, suffering and self side. But then I think the, for me, the other side was this, these glimpses of the miracle and perfection of life and how to understand that in relation to those other two questions. Uh, those were uh, pretty intense uh, for a little girl to, mm. <laughs> to try to work with, with no real guidance on those questions. Mm. And when I did come into contact with the beginning of some Dharma teachings, probably reading Alan Watts at about 11 or 12, mm. there was a real aha Finally, somebody is addressing these questions. <laughs> and I was raised, I was raised Unitarian Universalist by, in a essentially non-theistic way. So the questions about God and God's, my relationship to God were not, those were not resonant for me. In that way, traditional Christianity um, was not helpful in relation to these questions. Mm -hmm. Uh, Buddhist teachings, Dharma teachings, the first time I encountered them, even before I found a way to practice. Mm. 
we're really speaking. You quoted a passage in one of your essays. I'm going to read the passage to you now. I sort of hear a lot of what you're saying in this passage. And what you wrote was, um, or this is a translation from the Chinese by Thomas Cleary. And it says, Once a monk on pilgrimage met an old woman living alone in a hut. The monk asked, Do you have any relatives? And she said, Yes. The monk asked, Where are they? She answered, The mountains, rivers, and the whole earth, the planets, oh, I'm sorry, the plants and trees are all my relatives. And I just wonder if you can say a little bit about why you chose that passage. I know that you're also a conservation biologist, and so I'm just wondering if there's your sort of spiritual calling living itself out in a a career path as well, and just how, how that all sort of comes together. I just have to say, I love it as planets, too. Oh, yeah. That would be just as relevant. <laughs> right. Yeah. That passage is, uh, or that story, is one of the koans in The Hidden Lamp, the book that I worked on. And my co-editor and I had our choice of, although 100 stories are in the book, we had about 200 that we could from. And, of course, we agreed that we should get first, given, <laughs> given our, our commitment to the project. And I chose that one of, of all of those stories about women mm. for a number of reasons, I think. And as I worked with it and wrote about it, one of the things that I uh, really love about koans, I don't do um, the traditional koan practice that's done in the Kwanam school or in the Rinzai schools, um, but I have because of the book, spent a lot of time with koans and a lot of time with people who are exploring koans. And what I found is that um, over time, and even from one day to the next, they're like mirrors that reflect various aspects of life and practice, my own life and practice. If I were to sit down and sit with that koan and write about it right now, I might write something completely different than what is in the book. It's a living relationship with that old woman in the mountains and that monk. What comes up for me, just hearing it again, it was wonderful hearing you read it, is actually. Dogen's teachings, Ehe Dogen, who's the founder of my school in Japan, or really just brought it from China, the Soto Zen school, where he's so clear over and over and over again that everything is practicing. Everything has Buddha nature, uh, including walls and tiles and pebbles and the things we normally think of as inanimate. And a couple of years ago, actually because of being a Unitarian Universalist, I had a chance to go live for a while inside a Shinto shrine in Japan, and the Tsubaki Grand Shrine. And so being around Shinto teaching, which Zen is very influenced by, 
uh, the way that everything is alive, absolutely everything, and mm-hmm. and sacred, and what it would, and just a little taste of what life would feel like from that, including things like needles that you've used to sew your clothing, that that's alive and has So that's what comes up for me right now about that story, that that, um, that the glimpses of uh, living a life where, where uh, everything is a relative, everything is alive. And absolutely, I was drawn to the work that I did for so long because, uh, for one thing, the natural world was a tremendous healing place for me. And I actually very consciously felt like my bodhisattva practice in those years was what I, for what I called the green world, that um, our bodhisattva practice can be um, focused in various places and that mine was in trying to protect the rarest plants in the world. Hmm. What is that? um, What is it that's a sort of, extended version of practice of what you know what people think of as practice and i'm wondering if you could just say a little bit about what that looked like for you or felt like for you and in terms of how you understand practice how you understand the discipline of of buddhism as it informs your life that way i think for me it really comes down to to bodhicitta and to my in my case, anyway, uh, the vows that I've taken in various ways over and over again, which is that they're, <laughs> I guess I would sum them up as there is no part of life that is separate from practice. Mm-hmm. When I am working with people who are working with me as students in the Dharma, sometimes someone might say, well, I really haven't been practicing recently. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I'll say, well, tell me about your life right now. And mm-hmm. they'll say something, and it will be clear to me that they are practicing with all their heart, mind, and body. Mm-hmm. It's just it doesn't look like what they think practice is. Yeah. And that is not to say that formal practice in community, within traditions, uh, on a cushion, isn't really, in some ways, just an essential keel for for a practice life. Right. But you don't. You can't mistake the keel for the life. <laughs> Right. That, that if you think the keel is it, well, then actually, in some ways, you're very vulnerable. What if your practice community goes away? What if your teacher dies? What if um, your body doesn't allow? This has been true for me because of chronic illness. What if your body doesn't allow you to do the kind of practice that you thought of as really practice? Right. Does that mean that practice is gone or that your your ideas about it are too narrow? Mm-hmm. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about 
what it was like to write this book. You know, a uh, hundred stories, uh, the hidden lamp, a uh, hundred stories over these last twenty-five centuries, and and how that, uh, how the the practice of these women uh, over the last you know two millennium, two and a half millennium, informed your own practice. If there was a way that you saw your yourself in them, or they in you. Well, I love that question followed by following what I just said, because what I often say about these stories when I'm talking about the book, introducing the book, is that one of the ways that they are radically different from what we think of as the traditional koans, Zen tradition, is that uh, traditional koans are, of course, almost entirely male. And they take place almost entirely in a monastic context, a celibate monastic mm-hmm. And that throughout those stories of women, some of those do take place in a monastic context and as ordained nuns. But many of them take place in family settings, in uh, the wonderful stories of the old women at the side of the road who are plowing with an ox or selling tea cakes and just decimate the arrogant, partial understanding of some monk. <laughs> and I think in a way, if you, if you think about it, and I don't know if I've ever really thought about it this directly, all of those stories point to what I was just saying. That if you think practice has a certain form or it can only happen in a certain context, what happens when you meet that old woman on the side of the road that you think is just the unlettered old woman? And yet her understanding of the Diamond Sutra causes you to go home and burn everything you've ever written. <laughs> it's so funny. I was, as you were saying that, I was thinking about all of these stories where I feel like it's it's always some like diamond sutra master who like runs into an old woman on the road serving noodles and she just destroys yeah, him. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I, I don't yeah. know. It, it always seems like it's the diamond sutra yeah. master guy. Well, I think it's because the diamond sutra is such a non-dual teaching. Uh huh. So, right, any, the ideas about who's awake and who's not, who's practicing right. and who's not, those are very dualistic. So, of course, yeah, um, yeah, the Diamond Sutra, uh, the Diamond Sutra is what comes through. Yeah. I love those. That was, <laughs> yeah, they're always, they're so, they're so great because they always, they always just seem so, um, Loving and firm. <laughs> it's kind of like Kali oh, who yeah. just comes in, you know, totally, just, uh, by the way, this is my compassion. I'm just totally cutting it all one, off. One of the things I, I just want to add about, about the stories in the book, and this is pretty funny, uh, is that people sometimes think, because of our ideas about women and men, that the stories about women uh, teaching the Dharma are just going to be these Mm, warm, loving, compassionate, sweet story. Yeah. And working with what we were discovering, and and I was a big part of uh, the process of digging up 
these stories, most of which are not well known, is how few of them have that quality. <laughs> they actually have a quality <laughs> of ferocity uh-huh. and of uh, tremendous determination to practice. Yeah. There's one in there about the woman who uh, burns her face because the teacher can't come to this monastery, you'll distract the monks with your beauty. Oh, wow. And she says, thank you very much, goes to a market, picks up a hot iron, burns her face, returns to the teacher and says, now, will you accept me into your community? I mean, that's, there's nothing sweet in that story. Yeah. I wonder what question she had. She needed yeah, to work out. Yeah. Oh, she became a great teacher. I think you must have a great question if you want to be a great teacher. It's so hard. Yes, I think that's true. And you have to have great determination. I think that's one of one of the uh, isn't that one of the qualities from uh, uh, Sansanim was uh, great determination. Wasn't that? He certainly had it. I, so you know, you you speak often of uh, this uh, a woman in in um, the hidden lamp called uh, Satsujo. And mm-hmm. there was this one. <laughs> she always makes me laugh. <laughs> <laughs> well, she sounds amazing. Awakened very young. And, um, but also had a, you know, life with a family. But you, you actually had this, this interesting story about um, when she went in, when she, she actually prayed for help. And what I loved about you telling this story was, um, you know, this point where you said, you know, a lot of people think Buddhists don't pray, you know, which, yes, it's different than the way I, I, Christians pray, I suppose. But how is it that we find uh, refuge in the Dharma? How is it when we turn to Kuan Yin or, you know, whatever, like, mm-hmm. you know, suffering is for real. And um, there is refuge. Uh, there, and then you went on to tell the story about uh, your bowing practice and and how you uh, you just sort of were bowing, asking for help, and then the question almost just became the bow. And I I was just so moved by that story, but but also I was moved be, because it seemed like the the five hundred years or six hundred years between you and Satsujo just sort of kind of disappeared as mm-hmm. you were telling it. I was just like, oh, here they're, they're kind of in the same moment almost, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and um, I I do consider myself a, a devotee of Kuan Yin, of Kanon, who uh, was the uh, Bodhisattva that uh, Satsujo was bowing to and praying to um, in her own awakening. And I do believe um, in that uh, one of the appellations to uh, Kuan Yin or Avalokiteshvara is um, she who hears the cries of the world, mm-hmm. she who responds to the cries of the world. And that, and the person who had suggested that bowing practice to me was Linda Ruth Putz. And what she said is that bowing or asking for help, you don't actually have to be that concerned about who or what 
your uh, the, the personage or the en- energy that you're asking for help from. It is the asking itself that is the, or the bowing itself that is complete in a sense. Mm-hmm. And, and inevitably, Kuan Yin will answer. I, I have to say that as a priest, I had a really vivid experience the morning after my ordination and as a Zen priest. And it was quite a difficult journey to and through the ordination. It used to be challenging, I think that's the nature of ordaining. Mm. And, but that morning I woke up really early and I put on these robes that I had sewn and I was, it was a beautiful place up in Washington State and I was walking along the water before. And I thought, oh, I get it. My job is to be the eyes and hands and arms of Kuan Yin. That's it. That's all I have to do. Mm-hmm. I've never had a moment of such, uh, I mean, the clarity at that moment that, that that's it, right? And that's the Bodhisattva vow. That's it. But the, the Kuan Yin can't actually do it on her own. Buddha can't do it. Buddha's been dead a long time. And we are the hands and eyes and heart of um, awakening in the world as best we can do it as we stumble through. That is, I completely and entirely believe that. Yeah. No matter how imperfect, but when when you live your life with that alignment, um, you know, that's what transforms a life and the, and the world around you. I'm, I'm wondering if you have any sort of final words you'd like to say to the listeners about their practice life or, or something that's come up for you in your practice life that you, you'd like to leave with, with the listeners? I'll just say what comes, came up for me, and I don't even really know why, but is it would be to have courage. To have courage that um, uh, there's a line from Rilke, something like, um, you know, you are perfectly suited and the life of being a human being. And we are all, we're all in this together. And actually we have our relatives all around us and just to have courage. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sit, Breathe, Bow. I hope you found the conversation with Zenshin Florence Kaplow encouraging and helpful for your practice. You can find out more about her teaching by visiting her essay blog, Slipping Glimpser, Zen Wanderings and Wonderings, or by listening to podcasts of her sermons at uucuc.org. A special thanks to our sponsor, the Provident Zen Center. If you would like to deepen your practice commitment, I encourage you to explore PZC's residential and retreat opportunities. You can find all of that information at ProvidenceZen.org. If you would like some guidance on how to meditate, there are some videos you can watch at ProvidenceZen.org slash videos. My name is Ian Whitemar. I hope you'll join me again next week.